Welcome to Arbor Bridge Church's weekly podcast with your teacher, Daryl Canty. Arbor Bridge Church exists to bridge the gospel and our community by connecting people to Jesus and each other. Visit us online at arborbridgechurch.com. Morning, everybody. Um, obviously, I'm not Daryl, but now you know for sure now that he's gone in a different country. Um, but yeah, I'm good to be here again for the third time. Hopefully, I haven't worn out my welcome. Um, but I've got two two more of these, um, so I appreciate you guys sticking with me. Um, hopefully, we can tie it all together here uh, as we get towards the end. So today, I want to keep talking about the logos, um, or perhaps I should say logos. Slide. <laughs> Um, Silver gave me a hard time about uh, marking where the slides were supposed to be, so that was my uh, returning that favor. Um, I'm not sure I need to explain to anybody what a a logo is, but in the off chance you don't know, um, logos are usually a simple image or design that companies use to signify their products or services. Um, I went ahead and Googled it, and the internet says this. um, a uh, A logo is a symbol or other design adopted Uh, by an organization to identify its products, uh, uniform, vehicles, etc. Over time, though, these symbols become uh, a unique identifier for the entirety of the company uh, or organization itself. They become synonymous with the quality of its products or its services. Um, It basically marks their reputation, if you will, Uh, such that with one glance, you can kind of look at the logo and get an idea of, say, you know, oh, this was made by them, this is probably a decent product, or, oh, this was made by them, not going to touch that with a 10-foot pool. Um, So, for example, um, say a company came along and said, I wanted to create a dependable, secure, stylish mobile device. Initially, we would look at it and say, okay, they make this thing, Uh, But over time, as they build a reputation and of quality and all of these things, we would look at the logo and say, oh, that's that's Apple. They make a decent product. They're a decent company. On the other hand, if you have someone that comes along and says, I want to start a great football franchise, uh, we'll be the best team in the land. Um, You know, after several seasons or decades, uh, we can review their work and, and look at the logo and determine if they're, in fact, a good franchise. You might look at this one and say, not quite. Um, not, not ragging on the Lions fans, um, but you get the idea. So what I'm trying to get at here is, is a concept that I want to leverage for the idea of the church and, and our logo as Christians and what we should kind of live up to. So basically what I think this means is that um, the creator defines the identity or design for the company, and then the organization attempts to work and live up to that identity, and then the logo kind of re- represents that Um, if you can see it here. But then on the flip side, the consumer or the outside reviews that logo and assesses, you know, does this this match? Um, Is it really living up to what they had designed it to be? So like I said, I want to apply that logic to us as believers, um, and then particularly us as the church. Um, So to do that, we need to know those kind of three things. What is our identity? How do we work out and live up to that identity? And then when outsiders see our logo, will they say we're executing on that design? Are we living up to our identity? So whether or not you've realized it, as part of this sermon series, I've been attempting to focus on Jesus' life as the explanation for us individually and the church. 
And there's been a few reasons for doing that. The main one is that the Bible tells us the church is literally the body of Christ. Um, So I thought, why not look directly at what that body did and what that means for us? So in the first sermon, I talked about the origin of the church being beginning with the resurrection. Um, Not just because the resurrection was literally when the Christian faith started, but because the resurrection represents Jesus as the new Adam. It's starting over again. He's the new Adam. He's our prototype for everything. Last week, without explicitly mentioning it, I leveraged the Christmas story, the incarnation, uh, to show that Christ is the light of the world and has overcome the darkness. He is the meaning in the chaos. He's the one that slayed death. And he does all this, or represents that through his second birth, the resurrection, and eventually takes us back into the garden. But now that we're there, it kind of brings us to the question of identity. Who am I? What do I do? In the most basic sense. So in order to figure out our true identity and how we live it out, there are two aspects of Christ I want to focus on that I haven't touched on yet. His life and his death. But instead of discussing those at length, because I think we're somewhat familiar with Christ, um, I want to go a different route. I think most of you here are probably at least somewhat aware that Christ uh, lived a pretty morally upright life, um, satisfied Jewish law perfectly, and then died on the cross. So instead... I want to focus today on specifically Christ's own analysis of himself, his I am's, or his I am statements, if you will, um, his identity. Who did Christ think he was, and did he live up to that, and what does that mean for us? Perhaps one of the most debated and challenged aspects of Christ's ministry and life is how he identified himself, particularly because, well, he claimed to be God. Now, to be entirely fair, Christ's claims of his deity are somewhat hidden. You have to dig them out from within the context to really understand what he's saying. You, you can't just go looking in the Bible for Jesus saying, I'm God, worship me. Um, but the claims that he does make are perhaps much more profound. And I believe the most, or at least one of the most significant ones of these is in John's chapter 8. It's an intense exchange between Jesus and some Jewish leaders um, in the just to remind you, the Jewish leaders were those that, um, or the Jews were those that were descendants of Abraham um, and viewed him as a patriarch of their faith, the one with whom God made the original promise. I won't go all the, into all the detail of this chapter. I highly recommend you read it. Um, but the climax of the story is when Jesus says this, I tell you the truth, before Abraham was born, I am. Now to fully understand that, like I said, we have to understand the context. Um, And to do that, we have to go all the way back to Exodus, to when God states his own name for the first time to anyone. And here is what he said. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent you to me, sent me to you. The name of I am is how God first chose to identify himself. It eventually became so sacred that in Judaism, the name was not even spoken So Christ is claiming that to have existed before Abraham was even born, he's using the first identification God used on himself, and he's using something that the Jews wouldn't even utter, let alone ascribe to themselves. While it may be veiled, it is certainly a direct claim of his divinity. In fact, it was so obvious within the cultural context that the Jews who heard this responded by trying to immediately kill Jesus for his blasphemy. This is what they said. This is the whole passage. I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. At this, they picked up stones to stone him. 
but Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. John's gospel leverages this I am language um, to kind of build up all of this. Um, And he records several other I am claims of Christ. I'm not going to record all of them uh, or or mention all of them, but I want to focus on one today. Jesus says this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus directly identifies himself as God, but then he also directly identifies himself as the truth. Now, please remember, while these are incredibly outlandish claims, if the resurrection is true, as I talked about in the first sermon, we can't simply slough them off. If it is true that Christ is God and he is the embodiment of truth, his teachings and guidance should probably carry more weight. If he's our creator, our logos, as we said last week, because of this identity as creator, he can provide us with our, our identity and state how we should live. Here's how he summarizes the whole design for man in the New Testament. He says this, The most important one is this, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. The second is this, Love your neighbor as yourself. There's no greater commandment than these. But I think what we may not realize is that Jesus actually went beyond just these two laws. He didn't overwrite these, but he gave us a new command. And along with that, he gave us instructions on what it meant to follow that command. He gave us instructions uh, to the people around him on what it meant to be his disciples, what it meant to be Christians, what it meant to be the church. Um, But let's start with first how he defined our identity. This is what he said in that new command. A new command I give to you. Love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Jesus is stating that the Christian, the body of believers, the church, should love one another as he loved us. And that if we do this properly, the whole world will know that we are his disciples. They will be able to look at the church and know it and its parishioners are living symbols embodiment of Christ's love. So let me break that down more. Let me talk about how we define discipleship, how we define love, and uh, how we actually lived out that love. Here's how Jesus defines the ultimate love. He says this, Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. And then perhaps in the most famous verse of scripture, he shows us how he lived this out. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. The same writer actually recorded, that recorded these sayings of Jesus actually said, God is love, uh, which I think is relevant to today's conversation. So what about discipleship? Here's how Jesus defines discipleship, and I think it ties all of this together. If you love me, you will obey what I command. If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. So what, I think what he's saying here is that we must love Christ or God and obey his commands in order to be his disciples. And as he commanded, you will be known to the outside world as his disciples if you love each other as he loved us. It is really the culmination of loving God and loving others, those two commands that he had given elsewhere. We must love Christ and all else flows out from that. Now, if we recall that Christ is the truth and God is love and Christ is God, this all comes together in a magnificent way. That in order to truly love, we must love the truth. 
So let me wrap this all together by borrowing some insights from author Vince Vitale in a passage he writes titled, Do You Love the Truth? Being a lover of the truth is a high compliment. In fact, the Bible states that people will perish because they refused to love the truth. To be clear, love of truth is not a superficial love like loving ice cream. It is something much more profound. True love requires all of you. It requires you to submit your life. What then are we submitting our life to? What is the truth that we are supposed to love? What are the things that are actually true? Usually when we ask those questions, we give or get a philosophical answer, a belief or a fact. But is that type of truth or love really substantial enough to change a life? Uh, Comedian Jim Gaffigan has a great line. He, He asks his audience, have you ever read a book that changed your life? Me neither. And books and platitudes alone don't change lives, at least not in the deepest or highest sense, even if we love them. But there is a love that I think we all know and identify as something that's much higher, the love of a person. We know that love for people changes us much more deeply than a mantra or philosophy would. Thus, when Jesus makes the incredible claim, I am the truth, he doesn't just say, look at my teachings or the eloquence of the scriptures. In fact, he says these very things point to me. He says this, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. But these are the very scriptures that testify about me, and yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Jesus is saying the truth is all about him. He is making it personal and therefore lovable in the truest sense. Now, Christianity alone, truth is a person that you can love. It's not an idea or an ideology. It is the living person who can ask you, do you love me? Jesus says you can value and trust the truth because truth itself will be the one to take you by the hand, stand by your side, and ride with you, to guide you through the darkness, to be your light and your life. Here's an interesting uh, summary of this that uh, Vince Vitale says in this chapter. If the truth is a person, the search for truth becomes filled with the meaningfulness of pursuing a relationship. If all truth is ultimately grounded in the person of God, then every question asked is a question asked about a person. And every answer given is an answer received from a person. Every question about science is a question about how and why God has made and sustained the universe as he has. Every question about morality is a question about the character of God. Every question about politics and economics is a question about what it means to be made in the image of God and granted dominion over the earth. Every truth, no matter the discipline, says something about who God is and what he has done. Now you can love the truth because every truth, being personal, is a fitting object of love. What he's saying here is that a pursuit of any truth in any area of life is a pursuit of Christ. Unfortunately for many of us, we have sought a truth that has only let us down. Perhaps the worst of these letdowns is a result of searching for true love. We all need love to live, and yet most of us have suffered the heart-wrenching fate of loving something that cannot love us back, or worse, loving someone that won't love us back. Certainly this is the case if we love some inanimate ideology that can't love us back. But what about when we have sought romantic love only to be rejected? Or perhaps we've had a one-sided friendship 
or worst of all, had a mother or father who never loved us in the way we needed. There's no rejection more devastating than this. Christianity offers a stark alternative to the impersonal and superficial identities of this world when it says truth is a person. Not only does, it, does this mean that we can love the truth, but it means that love can be returned. The truth can love us. And the reality is that truth did love us by suffering and dying on the cross. However, so much is at stake when we consider love, especially the love of somebody claiming to be God. So how can we be assured of this love? I think a good rule of thumb is that the more someone is willing to give up for you, the more sure you can be of their love. The more valuable something is to someone, the more they're willing to pay for it. So how much was God willing to pay for you? Maybe this example will help. Father Maximilian Kolbe was a Polish Franciscan during the World War II. He was captured during the Nazi invasion of Poland and ended up in the Auschwitz concentration camp. One day the Nazis discovered that a man had escaped, and the Nazis had a procedure for punishing the remaining prisoners after an escape. Ten men will be starved to death. So a German officer chose ten men who were standing there in the ranks. But one of them pleaded not to be taken, saying, I have a wife and children. Father Kolbe broke the ranks and stepped forward and said, I want to die for that man. His substitution was accepted by the officer, and he was led away to die naked in a dark underground cellar. Perhaps one of the most challenging stories in the Bible is the story of Abraham's willingness to sacrifice his son Isaac. We struggle with God asking. We struggle with Abraham's willingness to offer his son as a sacrifice. However, maybe this story isn't necessarily about Abraham's willingness to sacrifice his son. And instead, it is a foreshadowing of somebody else's willingness to take the place of that son. What maybe we forget to realize from this story is that we're not Abraham. We're Isaac. And without argument, we deserve death for our actions and disobedience and for our utter failure to accept our identity and our design. And yet, instead of giving us what, what we deserve, God stops the sword from coming down on us. He says he will provide the sacrifice. He will take our place. And instead of Isaac, instead of us, God provides the sacrifice. Not just a ram, but the lamb of God, the Christ, the truth. Jesus breaks ranks and says, I want to die for that man. All of them. For God so loved us that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into this world er, to condemn us, but to save us through him. God made the first move by dying for us on the cross. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. This wasn't some 50-50 thing. God went all the way. He paid the entire price for us. It was not a love we deserved, nor a love we could ever earn. The cross may be only a fashion accessory to some, but it will always be the logo for Christ's love. It is a symbol that when anyone looks at it, they should be able to say, that man gave up his life for his friends. He gave up his life for me. Truly, no one has loved greater than this.
The church must make this love their logo and carry this grand light into all the world. We must love the truth and love like the truth so that whenever anyone looks at us or our church, they will say that they lay down their lives for others. They love one another like Jesus. And maybe one day through that love, those that look upon the cross on the steeple or around our necks or emblazoned on our hearts may finally come to live in light of the truth, to trust in the truth, and even to love and follow him. And then finally, they will know the truth, and the truth will set them free. Thank you. Thank you, Luke. I'd like to close us today in prayer. God, we thank you so much for Luke's message. We thank you for um, the words as we prepare to know how much you love us, as, um, that we have value uh, just for being us, and that you uh, valued us so much that you sent your son to die for us. Um, awesome. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Keep you as you go through this week. Thank you for listening. If you would like more information on our church, visit us online at arborbridgechurch.com.